0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, senior critic at large. And my guest today is Ruth Simmons, president of Prairie View A&M University, which is a historically black college in Prairie View, Texas. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Dr. Simmons.
1: Thank you, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: I I thought I would begin by uh, just sort of helping those who are not familiar with uh, HBCUs. Um, If you could just give us a little bit of an overview of uh, why they were founded and the role that they play in the higher education ecosystem.
1: Well, of course, there are uh, different, somewhat different histories, depending on the institution. Some are private, some are founded by the by the states. Um, But overall, after um, uh, after slavery and following Reconstruction, some were founded on the idea that something had to be done with these uh, newly freed slaves. Um, to have a livelihood, to be able to take care of themselves, uh, to serve their communities and so forth. I did see in the intro um, that there's a description of their having been founded um, to create an equitable education for uh, for Blacks. I, I, I dare say I don't believe that for a minute. I think they were created, by and large, um, to be inferior institutions. Um, they were created in their time to serve the needs of a population that needed everything, absolutely everything. And so, um, thankfully, uh, they were founded, and as a consequence of the work that so many people did to keep them alive, uh, to serve the students who came to them, and to build um, communities. um, HBCUs have created a wealth of uh, talent and knowledge and, provided to the nation leadership uh, across many, many decades that otherwise would perhaps not have been available to the country. So um, the importance of HBCUs is not to be understated, I would say. Uh, Without HBCUs, the country would look very different today, given the uh, deeply segregated communities uh, that persisted over such a long period of time, uh, and the the segregated universities that persisted also over such a long time. So uh, I like to say that um, the the nation uh, should express its gratitude to HBCUs for for rescuing um, uh, blacks basically from a very different kind of existence. Um, if it were not for HBCUs many communities would not have the professional class that they have today.
0: I'm really curious when you said that they were in many instances created to be inferior institutions and yet sort of exceeded, um, excelled uh, despite that. I mean, would you trace then some of the hurdles that they continue to face, particularly
1: with funding, um, to those those origins so let me clarify what i said i don't i don't want to appear too cynical but <laughs> the reality the reality is at the time that so many of our institutions uh, were uh, founded ours in 1876 there was no thought whatsoever that that blacks had the ability to perform at a high academic level Um, It was commonly thought that certain kinds of limited instruction um, might be available to blacks, but certainly nowhere near the kind of stimulating uh, intellectual activity and professional training that would exist in a comparable white institution. Um, They were deliberately uh, designed to be separate and quite unequal. In terms of of today, um, what what did this different kind of founding and this different set of expectations mean across time? Well, it meant, frankly, that um, uh, some were founded as uh, very narrow technical schools Mm -hmm. um, because blacks were good with their hands and they were good with labor and perhaps something should be tailored uh, to those kinds of talents. Uh, Some were uh, founded as um, normal schools, essentially, uh, in order to train people who would be able to educate more more Blacks. Over time, those fields expanded very slowly um, because uh, Black communities had all kinds of needs. They needed um, they needed nurses, for example. I love the Huey Long story about how he uh, managed to get um, a particular hospital in uh, Louisiana integrated. Um, and he did it very simply by arguing that, um, well, certainly you wouldn't want our white nurses to be um, serving black men patients. So um, we need to provide uh, black nurses for these black men, and so on. So that was that was um, that was the the flavor. Uh, but in spite of that, and in spite of being um, supported at a very differential level um, as institutions, uh, these these wonderful institutions kept going. They had the support of their communities. Uh, they had the support of of graduates, and they had some generous um, benefactors like the Rockefellers, for example, uh, in regard to Spelman, who uh, came forward and said, this is something that is important to do and I want to support this institution. And so my own undergraduate institution, Dillard uh, University, um, had, um, uh, had uh, Rosenwald and, and Stern, for example, uh, who were very generous to, uh, to Dillard. These kinds of gifts enabled uh, institutions, private, primarily to keep going for a very long period of time, though it's fair to say they were not able to offer the same level of education um, as uh, comparable white institutions. Because as you know, education is made up of many parts. It's not just a textbook. It has to do with facilities. It has to do with um, the kind of instruction that one can receive. It has to do with the preparation of the faculty um, uh, and so on. So there are many components to offering a fine education. And I would say that HBCUs, for the most part, up until today, have continued to try to do the same thing with less. I mean, one of the... um uh, things that have happened in recent years
0: is has been this uh, surge of attention on HBCUs, which has also been accompanied by uh, increased um, uh, donations and funding, um, privately certainly. Um, and I, and I'm curious because you've talked about the challenges of some of those uh, uh, some of those funds that they come with strings attached or limitations. Um, is that still the case, and and how much of a, a detriment is that in the the functioning of the institution?
1: Well, first of all, let me say it is extraordinary that in this very moment there is a kind of coalescing of support for HBCUs that certainly I've never seen in my uh, entire career, um, and it is something that is welcome but it's very different. So here are some of the elements of the difference. First of all, uh, we're dealing with support that is no longer at the symbolic or token level. For so many uh, years, uh, it was. And so um, donors, uh, institutions, uh, corporations would make a small gift symbolic to an HBCU and a huge gift to its counterpart uh, institution. Um, They would make a a gift with all kinds of strings attached to HBCUs because after all, could they even manage uh, money? Uh, And so they wanted to be extra cautious about giving funds to HBCUs because of the sense that perhaps uh, HBCUs wouldn't be able to manage as well. Um, And then, of course, they would make gifts to their counterpart institutions uh, that were were generously open to the leadership of the institution in terms of directing the funds. Well, guess what's happening today? First of all, the gifts are larger. That is very welcome. Uh, Secondly, uh, many of the gifts come absolutely without strings attached. They come with the proviso that uh, the funds be used in whatever way is needed to strengthen the institution. Now that does two things. First, it gives some credibility uh, to the fact that they believe that the leadership of HBCUs is capable of adding and subtracting, of allocating uh, resources judiciously, and of doing all the things that their counterparts and white institutions can do. So that that endorsement is very welcome and long overdue. Uh, and secondly, the idea that, um, that we are no longer having to funnel funds into things that we don't need. Um, and that's the part that was troubling about the previous era, is we'd be given funds that were welcome in one sense, but not for the most important things uh, that we needed funds for. And so this is this is an uh, an era, uh, unlike any uh, that most of us have seen, and we are very grateful for it, and very intent on using the resources in the best way possible to improve on what we're able to do for our students.
0: When you, when you assess the the interest in HBCUs, I mean, what do you attribute it to? Is it cultural shifts? The uh, the racial justice protests over the last few years, uh, the ability of the schools themselves to better advocate for themselves, uh, and incre- a different group of, of citizens who have the wealth that they can even contribute to an HBCU. I mean, is it all of those things, or?
1: It may, it may be a good a good many of them, but, but l- l- let me say that there is no question that in our country today we are reckoning with the fact that life in this country for certain groups has not improved to the extent that we thought. That was a pretty rude awakening after the Floyd um, uh, murder. Uh, To say to ourselves, you mean that we spent all this time going through civil rights, having executive orders for affirmative action, um, having national programs to uh, improve access, um, and and you mean we're no farther along than, than this? I think what that caused us to do, all of us, blacks, whites, everybody, is to say, let's go back and think about the assumptions we made before Um, And the kind of um, uh, the kind of plans uh, enacted, Um, perhaps we should go more directly to the problem and see if there are things that we can do that would have more immediate effect and quite possibly more lasting effect. Well, I mean, you can't get anything more lasting and and more uh, a a better proof point than HBCUs look how long they've existed, look how long they've been doing the same thing, look how long they've been overachieving in the face of tremendous uh, barriers. And so the outperformance of HBCUs, I think came more into focus. Um, And the, uh, the difficulties, I should say, with regard to other institutions also came more into focus. And that is that not enough progress has been made by other types of institutions with regard to access uh, and and equality. So I think it is the justice movement for sure that caused us to look again. Uh, Let me say that at my age and having been a child of the civil rights struggle, I'm embarrassed to say how surprised I was. Uh, to learn that things had not progressed nearly to the degree that we had hoped back in the 60s. I'm surprised by how naive I was to think that because particular paragons had succeeded, that we too easily assumed that the problem, so to speak, was fixed. The fact that one person becomes an Ivy League president means nothing, really. It just means that that one person did. It doesn't mean that problems are solved for all time, just because we've had some successes with some people being able to get over uh, those hurdles. So now we're going back and doing the groundwork that is so essential, and that is trying to understand the ways in which HBCUs put together a program with all of the difficulties they had that succeeded in getting a good Marshall to be the leader that he was. Um, that it succeeded in all of the people. Um, uh, one of the greatest writers of our period, Toni Morrison. H- how does Howard University produce a Toni Morrison? Um, and so now we're, we're looking at that and saying, okay, well, our thoughts about how education works may be a little too primitive. Maybe we're not taking uh, adequate consideration of all of the other parameters that contribute to people being productive citizens, being confident in who they are, being able to be um, a force for good in the country. Maybe we're doing the work that we should have done long ago.
0: Just to uh, remind viewers that you um, were the, uh, the first black person to lead an Ivy League institution when you were the president of Brown. And one of the things that you you brought up is that um, our focus on individual achievement um, as opposed to the broader, and I'm going to use the word systemic, um, intentionally, because it sounds like you are really pointing to the issues of systemic racial inequity. And that has become a really sort of contentious point. Of conversation, because it leads people down that path of critical race theory, And are you saying that the entire structure of the the country uh, is 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 racist? I mean, how do you, uh, as an academic, as a leader, um, take the country through what is clearly a challenging, difficult
1: territory? Well, um I'm working with a wonderful group here in Houston, a group of business leaders. Um, and we're working on the issue of um, diversity uh, and inclusion. And when I first approached this group to talk to them about how we could work together, I, I emphasized that there's there's no there's no shame in looking at where we are, discovering that we're not where we thought we were, and then deciding, let's take on the challenge of trying to redesign uh, what we're doing. After all, on an ongoing basis, businesses do that all the time. Communities do that all the time. Universities do it all the time. People are so fond of, um, of strategic planning, right? Uh, Well, uh, let's look at our country and ask ourselves whether or not if we project forward, as we should have during the civil rights movement, if we uh, project forward, what are the kinds of things that need to be emphasized in order for us to have the kind of satisfying relationships um, that we want to have as citizens of this country? What are the things that matter? Well, we now know uh, that What matters, in part, is that inclusion uh, has risen to the top in a way it was not present before. And why is that? Because um, the way in which we value each other, the way in which we respect each other, these have become factors that we are now looking at and understanding how important they actually are. At first, we concentrated on, well, what's the degree that you have? And do you go to the do you go to school and do you get the right um, the, the right degree? And then when you when you do that, are you how are you performing and so forth? We concentrated on all those factors, which were good, but we left something out critical. And that is you can be the smartest person in the world. And people can still discriminate against you. And so you've got to go back to the root cause and ask yourself, how can we learn as human beings, all of us, all of us together, to be the kind of country where people feel valued? That's the nub of it to me. And so, uh, so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's very, to me, it's very exciting because I have lived through all of the other parts of it. You know, I grew up in a deeply segregated South. Um, where, uh, where my parents uh, couldn't go in front doors, um, where my mother uh, worked as a maid because that was the only job that she could get, uh, where they never felt the respect of, uh, of the communities that they were a part of. Uh, I lived through that. And so I know how much it matters to people uh, that they are valued, that they are respected, and I think the movement we're on now is all about that, to be perfectly honest with. Yes, equality of opportunity, um, equality of um, of benefits. Um, uh, we live in a world where health disparities has extraordinary complica- uh, consequences for, for uh, underserved communities. That's a real problem. But... If you stepped into any of those communities and you ask about what it feels like on a day-to-day basis to be a part of of, of this uh, country, they will say how much they value being treated with respect. So I, I actually love the place we are now. I think of all the people who are who are citing critical race theory and so forth. Uh, I think they're running for cover. I think they don't understand what it is. Um, uh, I think it's a it's one of those catchwords that you find when you're looking uh, for a way to try to evade the the real issues that are at hand. And I don't care whether people talk about critical race theory. Um, That's of little consequence to me. What I care about is whether or not they're talking about these children and whether or not they're going to get a fair chance. Every child, I don't care, Black, Hispanic, white, doesn't matter, okay? are they going to, when they are born, will we see them as having a fair chance of living the life that they should live? That's the, that's the nub of it. And anybody who wants to bring in theories uh, that d- distract us from that, let them bring in those theories, but we must not be distracted from the fundamental question.
0: Do you find that um, the generation now that is really raising its voice um, and is um, sort of arguing against incrementalism. Um, I mean, do you, do you look to that as a sign of progress and hope? Are you cheered by that?
1: Well, I, it, it's hard, you know, I'm old. And so no. it, it, I, don't, I don't want to impose my judgment on young people who are living their lives and trying to do what they think is best. To have the future that they deserve, so I'm not going to I'm not going to second guess what they're doing. But here's what I do think is very uh, important: mm-hmm. um, what's important is that they care, and that they're actively looking for ways to improve upon the lives of so many people uh, in our country. What can be wrong with that? Um, uh, they may go about it in a different way. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I chastise my students all the time because uh, if they come into my office and they say something that I think is weird or is off base, I I challenge them right away and I said, that's that I you know no don't and and I, I was I was talking to a student who was sending me text messages with all kinds of cryptic things in it and and so I stopped and decided to lecture him about what it's like to be an older person. And to be getting text messages the way he's sending them. and so, So why is it that I don't want to go Rodney King on you, but why is it that we cannot just try to work harder at communicating with each other, okay? I don't want to have to go and text the way my students text because that's their mode of communication. And I don't want them to feel that they are saddled with all of the restrictions that I was saddled with when I was coming along at their age. I think a coming together and talking about these issues and working it out, and that's the reason that we set up something called an activist in residence in our center here, because we want to, we don't wanna just complain about the way young people go about things. We want to give them examples of ways that change has come about in the past, through the passion and persistence of individuals, because they're gonna create their own path. It's better for us to give them examples uh, than to watch them um, create um, uh, things that have been done before uh, only to stumble and then delay progress. So I believe very much in um, in offering examples uh, to young people but not stifling what they, uh, what they do. The future is theirs, it's not ours.
0: Well, I think on that optimistic note, we are going <laughs> to have to end because we are terrible, I'm terrible sad to report out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today. And Thank you. Those who are watching, if you're interested in more Washington Post Live programming, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com and register for upcoming events. I'm Robin Givon. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for
1: listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.